Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting to you across North America on two stations on the Big Talker 1067 in Wilmington, North Carolina, and for the first time on Saga 960 AM here in the Peel region in the greater Toronto area. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, and I'm joined on the mic by my co host, forever partner. And uh, partner in crime, if we can use that, uh, the Twitter bio mention of our Robin Hood CEO, uh, David Clement. David, uh, how's it going out there? Oh, it's going, it's going. Super excited um, for our first fully syndicated episode uh, airing in two countries. Um, so two very distinct group of uh, listeners, but super excited to talk about all things consumer choice and uh, really continuing to broaden the the size and the scope of the show. Um, But one note really quick for those who are listening to um, you and I, maybe for the first time on Saga 960, uh, if you want to see any of our previous episodes, uh, we've been doing this for uh, just over a year now, you can go to consumerchoiceradio.com. Um, So whether you want our insights on uh, what recently happened with GameStock or what smart environmental policy looks like, we have a long year's worth of content um, discussing all sorts of topics. So uh, I strongly encourage you to check out ConsumerChoiceRadio.com for more of what we have put on over the last year. And the folks at Saga 960 have been great. They've invited David and myself on various programs and shows to promo. So if any of you are listening for the first time to us, I guess the promo worked. So uh, yes. very good job on them. We're, we're very happy so far with the reception that we've had. And uh, it's been great. Hopefully you also have great reception there on your radio so you can hear this or if you're listening online. Uh, so hello to everyone uh, across Ontario and also to North Carolina where we're broadcasting So a great opportunity to continue to expand Consumer Choice Radio. And as David mentioned, you can always follow us on Twitter, Consumer C Radio. Check out ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. We'll be putting up our interviews and links and show notes and everything else. And uh, for the hour, we've got some interesting interviews. Uh, We might have some debates left and right, and uh, we're going to cover some good topics David, who are our guests uh, who we have lined up for the next hour? I think this will intrigue a lot of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, our, our, uh, we have two guests, two members of parliament um, here in Canada. One is Dan Albus, a conservative. Um, and then the other is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who is a liberal. And so we'll be talking about uh, two issues that are important to us. One is liberalizing uh, the, the country's alcohol market with Dan Albus, but then also talking about harm reduction um, and, and how to treat or how to deal with substance abuse and the opioid crisis with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. So um, two fantastic uh, members of parliament, two great interviews. Um, so super excited for our listeners to get a taste of that uh, a little later on uh, in the hour. Um, but before, not bad, eh? To, yeah. to show up, uh, show up on day one and have uh, two members of parliament on the program. That ain't bad, eh? No, not bad at all. But uh, I mean, we we can't we can't ignore the big news um, that broke uh, rather recently. 
And that is that Jeff Bezos is no longer going to be the CEO of Amazon. Um, he will be stepping down, handing over the reins, and I think he'll be taking on um, a, a position of executive chairman. So he's not fully removing himself from the organization, but it is a change of leadership um, at the company. And given how closely linked Amazon is to all of our lives, um, I mean, Yael, you and I, we talk about this all the time, ordering ordering. Uh, products via Prime right to the door has been, um, I mean, I don't really, I, it's just been a huge help throughout the pandemic, being able to do that, whether it's uh, household items, groceries, whatnot. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. And I'd love to hear your take on um, on Bezos taking a step back from the leadership of what is one of the largest companies in the world. Yeah, and I, I think the way that this is going to be covered in a lot of media, and if you're able to read about this, everyone is going to focus mostly in the business press and, you know, what does this mean for the future of Amazon? And uh, a lot of squabbles, you know, on the board of directors and the various projects. I think from our perspective, let's just look at basically how all of our lives are have improved by Amazon. And Jeff Bezos has been central to that. Uh, I do remember very early on, I think I was living in Montreal at the time, and uh, Amazon.ca, you know, had already started up. At that point, it was really only books mm -hmm. uh, that I remember. And that was sort of the main large product of Amazon. And, of course, uh, Bezos himself was laughed out of many boardrooms when he was pitching the idea of Amazon as this kind of revolutionary bookseller. And uh, hopefully he would expand to selling other products. Uh, well, you know, he's the one who's laughing now. So he's, yeah. um, as uh, I've seen elsewhere, he is going out on the absolute top. It's been an amazing uh, two years, at least for Amazon, just the, the amount of record growth, uh, how he's fluctuated between being a, a super rich billionaire to sometimes the, the richest person in the world, depending on the stock price. Uh, but just think of all the brands that, that Amazon has now come to encompass. It's obviously the Amazon.com that you and I know, and everyone has used on, on some, you know, probably some basis. Yep. Uh, but a lot of the other things, Audible, uh, this is the sort of audiobooks, Goodreads, which is like a social networking site for readers. Mm -hmm. Prime uh, Video. We've got, yeah, we've got Ring, we've got Twitch. Uh, Whole Foods is now uh, under the Amazon umbrella, which is, again, an amazing store uh, throughout the United States, and, and hopefully uh, we can expand that around the world. But man, this is just an incredible journey for Amazon, uh, something that has satisfied many of us throughout the pandemic. So many consumers, millions of people have been able to get products because of Amazon's just model and the way they're able to ship things cheaply, the way they're able to put together a marketplace, and one that really empowers third-party sellers too. I mean, this is this is really something to behold, the, the Bezos uh, era at Amazon. Yeah, that's one common misconception I, I almost always see about Amazon is people will complain that Amazon sells their own goods alongside third-party goods um, as if they're kind of behaving in a predatorial way and crowding out competition. But if you look at the numbers over the last 10 years, what Amazon used to, say, used to sell used to be 90% of their own products. And now it's, I think, lower than, than 25%. Um, so as time has gone on, the platform has, has essentially been better utilized by 
third party sellers, local businesses, uh, retail chains and things like that, um, as opposed to just being one big marketplace for Amazon branded goods. So uh, another interesting way to look at it is it's allowing for all of us as consumers to connect to businesses that we otherwise wouldn't really have access to or wouldn't know how to get to. It makes it easy, accessible. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a big positive. Um, there is one other interesting announcement that Yael, you brought to my attention. I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to say in regards to Amazon, but just, um, just the, the one part about that is what Amazon has been able to do really well and what I think the pandemic is now teaching us and we're seeing with these vaccination rollouts is that they know how to do supply chains. They know mm -hmm. how to do fulfillment and they've been able to scale that so incredibly that pretty sh I'm pretty sure in most major cities around the world where Amazon exists, you've seen some kind of courier service that's tied to Amazon or contracts with Amazon. Uh, that has just been incredible. And that's, that's really something that we cannot gloss over. I mean, the, just the, um, I mean, for myself, the price discovery that you can have on Amazon, being able to switch between pages and compare prices and really see what is the actual cost of something has just been, been amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually I, I should take this opportunity to, um, to scold some of my neighbors in Oakville as well. So there's a big, I think we've, we've maybe talked about this on the show before, but I'll, I'll bring it up again. Um, there's a, a large plant, Amazon, um, shipping and receiving warehouse essentially um, that will, or that is seeking to be built in Oakville. And there are people who are complaining um, because they don't want it here in Oakville. It's like the, the ultimate nimbyism, um, which I find particularly problematic considering the economic circumstances of, um, of what we're dealing with now because of COVID. And so you have this one industry that is growing exponentially. They want to grow here um, in the area. And you have people whining uh, about how it could potentially marginally make traffic a little worse at peak times. And it's like, guys, do you want your fellow, do you want your neighbors to be able to have jobs, um, whether they're in management up, up the line and they're higher paying jobs or they're entry level jobs? I, the answer to that should be yes under normal circumstances. And it should be uh, it should be a resounding yes, given the economic circumstances of what we're dealing with. And so it is a little tiresome to see my fellow Oakvillians um, whining about commerce and, and economic growth um, in the area. It's it just- Yeah, we've seen these, we've seen these things happen as well. They poke up around the United States, uh, certainly with AOC, and New York, and mm -hmm. I think it was, they were trying to move the headquarters to Long Island or one of these places, and she was very against the tax credits, which I think is, is something that I think you and I, David, would agree with, uh, but she was making the argument that we just don't even want Amazon here at all, <laughs> which is not the way that you want to go when, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of your constituents are uh, currently suffering under pretty bad conditions. Uh, I'm I'm guessing a whopping majority of them use the service, and even more... Mm -hmm are able to contract work there and at least gain some kind of income during this time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so hopefully things proceed here without any other major hurdles, but um, real quick, I know that we will be going to 
commercial shortly before we get to our interviews, but really quick, also exciting news in the disruption and innovation space. Um, Uber with a major acquisition of, I believe, is it Drizzly? Oh yeah, it's called yeah. Drizzly. Amazing Drizzly. company, new service. Tell us all about it, David. I know, I know so, this is something you love on your doorstep. Yeah, so Drizzly is alcohol delivery. Um, so the acquisition, so Uber buying Drizzly is a big step forward in terms of consumer choice in that space, um, especially as different markets roll out more competition in the actual retail space. So once you have convenience stores and grocery stores um, more openly selling alcohol and you get rid of these silly beer store monopolies and LCBO monopolies and things like that, you'll have the opportunity to order um, to order alcohol to your door um, at competitive prices uh, in the same way that you order food. And that is great. I mean, that's great from a consumer choice perspective, um, but it's also great from a consumer safety perspective. And sometimes we forget to talk about this. Um, these apps that make it easier for alcohol to come to you, make it less likely for you to go and seek it out maybe when you shouldn't. And what I mean by that is impaired driving. Um, so we've seen pretty widespread across North America that mobility apps like Uber and Lyft significantly reduce drunk driving. And I think that this will only add to that positive impact because if you're having people over now, no, obviously not now because of COVID, but you're having people over and you're short on supplies rather than someone getting behind the wheel of a car to drive to the store, maybe when they shouldn't, you're going to order it to your door like you would a pizza. Um, and that is a great advancement of consumer choice and for um, consumer safety in many ways. So huge positives there. And, and it is active in Alberta. So apparently Drizzly does operate right now in Alberta. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully they can expand to other Canadian provinces once the rules are relaxed. Definitely something we'll get into a bit later, David. Yep. And uh, really excited to be here on Saga and the Big Talker, guys. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio, consumerchoiceradio.com. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I have the pleasure of introducing uh, one of our guests for today's program. He was the youngest MP elected in the greater Toronto area. He's the member of parliament for the riding of Beaches East York. And in a world of very rigid party politics is one of the most independent members of parliament uh, in the country. Welcome to the show, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great, great. So right off the top, I mean, obviously, uh, everybody's job has been affected by the pandemic. A lot of us are working from home. What's it like to try and do Ottawa virtually? What is virtual parliament like? It was a challenge early on, but I would say that we've settled into a pretty decent routine where the House of Commons has established virtual committees, virtual parliament. We can do it through Zoom. We can vote. Right now we're working on a voting app with facial recognition so that we can our votes don't take over an hour. So really the House of Commons administration staff have stepped up and, and made it happen in a serious way. For me, I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old, so I have appreciated the time. It's been a challenge at times to, to balance both, 
given you're working from home oftentimes, but I get to see my kids a lot more. And, and my life previously was back and forth between Toronto and Ottawa every other week. So it's in some ways, my kids know me and like me a lot better. Yeah, that's good. If if I remember correctly, you it was you were reading your um, what, it was your son or your daughter a bedtime story and voting, yeah. I believe. Yeah, and it was the that, first virtual vote, and I didn't fully appreciate that the camera would linger on me <laughs> after I'd voted, and so I voted, and then immediately went back to reading my four-year-old uh, son Mac, uh, Shel Silverstein book and poem, and anyway it became much more of a thing than I ever expected and uh you know and I think Mac at one point I guess after I'd gone back or after I was voting he went no and like yelled louder than I had yelled so it it there's the challenge of I now manage beyond bedtime (laughs) to vote (laughs) to make sure that doesn't happen on the regular but it it was a a unique moment of virtual parliament and in terms of the issues that uh, you guys have been able to vote on or to have committees on uh, is there something that you know has been brought up in the deliberations that would be much easier to do in person that has been really hard to do sort of virtually? I know there's a lot of talk about the the different regulations and any kind of economic packages and restrictions on travel. Um, is there any of that that's just made all the more difficult, or do you think uh, everything has been pretty efficient so far? Early on, it was a challenge because before we had virtual parliament set up, we couldn't. Those you know they reduced quorum numbers and many of us couldn't be in the chamber to vote. And so that was obviously a real challenge. I would say the greater challenge is not so much the virtual setting, but just the emergency setting. So needing to deliver these programs very quickly. And so having the time for debate that we ordinarily would have, there just isn't that time. And so that's been probably the greatest challenge where we see a program like the wage subsidy, for example, is now being abused by companies who really are undeserving of it and are abusing our goodwill. That wouldn't have happened probably if we had rolled that out over a six month to a year time period had sufficient debate in both chambers, but we were rolling this out really quickly to get support for businesses and individuals in need. So I I think that's been the greatest challenge. The one thing I would flag in terms of the virtual limitations, just there's a lot that gets done informally in caucus, sitting next to colleagues in the chamber, sitting next to colleagues in the lobby, sitting next to colleagues and having those informal chats and building up coalitions of support for different issues. And that is a lot we have to be much more explicit and direct in our text messages, emails, phone calls to build that kind of support and to communicate with colleagues now. Yeah. It's almost like missing, missing the water cooler time. Yes, exactly. For, for your average uh, office worker um, switching gears here to something that you're passionate about to, and, and a topic that Yael and I are both quite passionate about is harm reduction. Um, so you've taken what many people would probably see as, as a pretty bold stance um, and said that when it comes to substance abuse, that is a health issue and not a criminal issue. And if I uh, remember correctly, you've recently put forward um, some bills that would uh, approach the issue of, of substance abuse from a harm reduction perspective. Can you walk our listeners through what it is that grounds that opinion and what the end goal is of going the direction of decriminalizing things like drug possession and whatnot. Right. So first, I think we we need to know the backdrop, at least here in Canada, that since January 2016, over 16,000 Canadians have died because of the opioid crisis. And pre-pandemic, StatsCan had said that our life expectancy has stalled for the first time in 40 years, and they pointed to the opioid crisis. Now, our public health experts have said we should treat 
drug use as a health issue, and there's great stigma to people seeking treatment. And what is that stigma? Well, there's societal stigma and the moralizing around drugs, but there's also the criminal sanction. And the largest stigma that stands between someone who needs help and the help that they need is the criminal sanction. And um, this is not about traffickers and producers. This is about the very people who, who need our help, people that we would treat as patients in other contexts. We would treat them if they had a gambling addiction, if they had uh, an eating disorder, if they had an alcohol addiction. We would be treating them very differently and we would not be threatening them with criminal sanctions. And we need to do the very same thing when it comes to substance use problems. And that, it's as simple as that. Now, I would say it's not particularly bold insofar as public health experts have called for it for many years. Police chiefs recently here in Canada, our, our National Association of, of, of Chiefs of Police have called for decriminalization and said our current drug laws aren't working. And in no other context do we see such a scale of harm and see the laws that are in place are actually exacerbating and perpetuating that harm. I have um, one question I think is uh, relevant for a lot of the debates that are happening in the House of Commons, but, but also happening in the different provincial capitals. How do you see the evolution of uh, sort of federalism in Canada uh, throughout the course of the pandemic? Is this something that uh, do you think has helped some areas kind of weather the pandemic? Has it made things more difficult? I know you're, you're obviously in uh, sort of the federal parliament, so you're, you're dealing with a lot of those issues. But I'm wondering your view of sort of federalism of uh, the jurisdictions of the provincial uh, legislatures, if you see a, a tug of war there, are things getting better? Are they getting worse? Uh, obviously, I'm from Quebec, so I'm very biased. Uh, but yeah, I just want to know your thoughts. <laughs> Our federal structure is really important in some ways as, as a matter of checks and balances. And, and obviously, provincial jurisdictions, and then ultimately through municipal jurisdictions in some cases, these jurisdictions are, are on the ground in better place to serve communities with specific and different needs than the federal government in, in many contexts. I will say there are challenges in the course of the pandemic where we see some provinces that maybe didn't act quickly enough to protect long-term care homes. We see provinces that didn't, didn't act quickly enough to establish paid sick leave and or, or didn't at all and, and really didn't step in, take commercial rent subsidies as an example. The federal government has stepped in and in a serious way and supported an area really of provincial jurisdiction. So I, I think areas of jurisdiction have in some ways impeded our pandemic response. And in other ways, I think just from a citizen perspective and the messages I get in my inbox, they have fallen away in, in many respects, that there's a demand from Canadians to say, that's not good enough. I want my, I want our seniors protected in long-term care homes. I, I don't give a damn if it's provincial responsibility. You both have to work together to make this happen. Our social safety net is broken. Millions of people would have been left behind if the federal government hadn't stepped, stepped up with CERB. So fix this, work together and fix this. And so I think there's going to be a real push, whether it is childcare, housing, or long-term care, and any number of issues, that there is an expectation from Canadians that all levels of government need to work together. They have to stop pointing the finger at each other and say, we've done our part, it's now up to them. We need to work together to deliver for Canadians. And the pandemic will have, I think, really put pressure on us as governments to work together and to get things done. And on that relationship, that federal provincial jockeying. So ha have there been open ears when it comes to harm reduction at the provincial level? Because it's one of those weird scenarios where the federal government can certainly change laws, but in many instances, the facilities and, and programs that people would be entering into are at the provincial level. And I know there's been some irritation with the Albertan premier over his viewpoint of whether or not the, the province should adopt certain harm reduction principles. 
And so I'm interested to see what your take is um, in terms of how this progresses. So let's say your bill moves forward, it gets passed, we are able to make these tweaks to the criminal code. What's next for the provinces then to really make sure that we are preventing overdoses and helping people get ultimately the help that they need? Right. So we've seen this debate, unfortunately, play out to some extent already as it relates to safe consumption sites. And it used to be the federal government was opposed to under the Harper years, change of heart on the, you know, the Supreme Court was very clear unanimously that, that safe consumption sites save lives and their benefits have been proven. We've expanded their use significantly, but there has been obviously there have been pressure points, certainly with Alberta, as you indicate. There are other provinces that are very much on board with an evidence-based drug policy focus and a harm reduction focus. I think we are going to have to, when we look at ramping up supports, this isn't only about removing stigma, this is also about then increasing treatment and, and supports for individuals in need. So that is ultimately going to come down to, yes, federal dollars in some cases, but ultimately come down to delivery through the provinces. We should put conditions on some of our dollars to say we will fund treatment, but it has to be evidence-based. So for example, abstinence-based treatment should not be on the table for, for federal funding. But it's going to require the provinces to step up in a more serious way. Some provinces won't step up in the way that I personally want, I, I don't think. So we have to work with like-minded provinces where they exist, establish best practices, show the evidence and what works. And then I fully expect other provinces along the way to, to add their voices and to, and to come on board. And I think it will get much easier now that the police chiefs are on board as of July. I think it will be much easier. I've seen the debate already in parliament with my own bill. It, it's the language of conservatives have, has shifted significantly on this issue in a very short period of time. And yeah. uh, on that note, real quick, uh, in terms of working with the conservatives, do you see a lot of uh, movement, uh, sort of uh, an opening up on that issue broader? I mean, are you able to get uh, a good number of members uh, that are listening to you and want to hear about your bill? Or is this something that's uh, still kind of partisan? I know there have been a lot of uh, reports about the leader Aaron O'Toole and sort of his views on it. Um, is this something that is becoming a bit more uh, sort of uniting of the, the parties there in Ottawa? I think the conservative position has softened significantly. Aaron O'Toole's comments were welcome in large measure when he said serious penalties shouldn't apply to people who have you know, substance use issues and are possessing drugs for simple possession. Of course, no penalties should apply. So it's still some room for, for Aaron to move there. I would also say the... You know, we've had one hour debate on my bill. We'll have another in early March before it has to a vote as second reading. The, the, the real goal of that bill for me is to elevate the conversation, send it to committee, bring expert witnesses, police chiefs, public health experts, prosecutors. We've had judges that have been public in their comments on this and really elevate those voices to say we need to change our laws and the government should do it. Not a simple, you know, not a private member as far as it goes, but my job is to further the conversation. I think conservatives will continue to, to shift their rhetoric and to, and to change their minds. And part of the reason for that is we see different voices come on board. I mentioned the police chiefs. The other reason for that is every community is affected. People are dying. I, I mentioned thousands of people and they, they're they dying from all socioeconomic backgrounds and, and all political stripes. So this is affecting all of our communities. And when we look at what a, a harm reduction model could look like, I know that I think we're as of just a few days ago, Oregon has officially shifted its approach and a lot of people point to Portugal. I'd love it for you to weigh in as to maybe what has worked or what hasn't worked abroad. Because I know when, I mean, Yael and I talk about bold uh, policy ideas all the time. And a lot of times ordinary Canadians go, well, okay, 
has anybody already done this? Does it work? Do we have evidence to support it that it works? And so I'd love to hear your take on on some of the, the background knowledge of whether it's worked abroad. Right. So many jurisdictions have moved forward closer towards decriminalization. Portugal is probably the example that most people are aware of in this space. And there, the evidence is very clear. In 2000, when they moved forward to this approach, they didn't say it is no intervention at all. They basically said, you're, if you are caught with the possession of a, a substance, a controlled substance for personal use, you would go before a dissuasion commission. So instead of a, a judge in a criminal context, you would go before a social worker, a health professional, and a legal professional, and they would take a public health focused approach with your interests in mind. And we see there that the number of overdoses went down. We see that the number of people seeking treatment increased by 60%, which is the most important number. Obviously, incarceration costs and everything else went down too. And the number of people using drugs didn't increase in any noticeable or demonstrable way. And problematic substance use among young people actually declined. So all sorts of good numbers coming out of Portugal. The real question, and I think where the debate ought to be, is what kind of intervention is required, if any, for as an alternative to incarceration. And so conservatives in the debate we had put on the table where there should be mandatory treatment. Well, we know actually on the evidence we have that mandatory treatment doesn't work. So is there a role for an intervention or is there a role for education as the intervention? So do we want the law to impose itself in any way the way Portugal does? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Or <laughs> is there more of an education focus and, and a referral to healthcare providers, but, but a, a, you know, not on an obligatory mandatory basis. And so I think that's where, if that's where we center the debate, I think it's a very helpful space for us. Thank you for your work on this. And thank you for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. Uh, I, again, have the pleasure of introducing uh, our second guest for today's uh, program. Uh, he is the Member of Parliament for Central Okanagan, Sim, Simakamaline and Nicola. Similkameen. Similkameen, thank you. Uh, and Nicola, he's the CPC's opposition critic for the environment and climate change. And he just so happens to be the member of parliament trying to free up Canada's alcohol industry. Welcome to the show, Dan Albus. Thanks for having me, David. And you're not the only speaker that stumbled over that name. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. That's a tricky one. I'm sure if I try and say it again, I'll probably get it wrong too. But uh, yeah, thank yeah, you. You don't for... want to break anything, pull anything. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for for joining Yael and I on the show. Um, right off the start uh, of the start here, let's get to what you have been up to most recently, um, which is your push to allow for alcohol to be shipped via Canada Post. Um, basically direct to consumer shipment. So I'll let you walk through for our listeners what that actually means. And if you wouldn't mind why it's necessary. Sure. Well, since becoming a member of parliament, uh, I've been championing the, the, the changes to uh, these outdated uh, approaches to liquor, um, whether it be the old Importation to Intoxicating Liquors Act, uh, opening up the federal lines to allow this activity, uh, to championing the Free the Beer case uh, to be heard in the Supreme Court, uh, to today where we're talking about Bill C-260, uh, which is essentially uh, making it so that Canada Post can ship anywhere in this great country. 
Um, look, right now we have a patchwork system. Uh, consumers are, are being denied the ability to taste, uh, you know, an award-winning Chardonnay from my region. Uh, and in fact, it's actually easier for someone in the Okanagan to send to someone in London, England, than London, Ontario. That needs to change. This bill would allow that. Wow, it sounds like uh, really all of this has, you know, culminated in many court cases. I know a lot of people are watching this. Uh, there's there's been a lot of talk of people crossing provincial boundaries and what you're discussing about international trade. Uh, I mean, that's something that is really ridiculous uh, for many people. Uh, where do you see sort of uh, the future of interprovincial free trade and uh, beyond alcohol if if perhaps this sentiment can build to other issues as well? Well, sure. And it, look, we know that consumers benefit from more choice and competition for a better price. Uh, that's the, you know, I believe in competitive markets, uh, a willing buyer, willing seller. And so uh, whether it be on the interprovincial uh, trade of, uh, you know, our artisan distillers, uh, distilleries, I should say, or, you know, or the wine of my wineries or the beers of so many great brewers, um, you know, we know that people want these products and they, you know, quite honestly, uh, you know, this is a bit of a niche area where someone maybe have visited, uh, you know, a great place in Nova Scotia, uh, and, and wants to tell their friends and family about it. Uh, and, uh, they can easily pick up the phone or go, or use this thing we call the internet. Um, look, COVID-19, you know, has really changed a lot of the way we look at, at things. And quite honestly, Canadians are adopting home delivery more and more. So you know what? The outdated practices by the liquor monopolies and, you know, people ask me, you know, like, you know, who stops these things? Well, it's the liquor monopolies. They are still trying to act like Canada is stuck in the 19th century. And you know what? Uh, th that's not appropriate for, for today. And these small and medium-sized wineries, uh, these small artisan distilleries, and these craft brewers who work so hard, they're seeing their foot traffic drop because of COVID-19. So why would we not want to say to them, you know, get out there, uh, do your best, and we'll make sure you'll have a better market overall? Now, you just, yeah, you did ask the question about, you know, the whole trend for interprovincial. Like, look, um, the federal government negotiated with the provinces in a process called the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, which I think is completely silly. You know, we are a country united. For us to need to sign a trade agreement with the provinces really kind of shows there's something else that's going on here. And you know what? They exempted uh, alcohol. In fact, um, they just kicked it out. There's not even a reference to it. And half of that, half of that agreement was all what they weren't going to be, what they were going to exempt because it was a negative list. So, you know, that's not a serious approach we have to, uh, you know, free and fair trade in this country. Uh, and it's really surprising because Canada, we have so much trade access internationally. Why aren't we seeing that same trade internally? And so this bill is trying to push that to the forefront. But there's lots of other things. I, I will tell you regulations on, uh, uh, you know, on uh, trucking regulations. Uh, there's lots of questions about credentialing. I would love to get into someday. Most of that is under the provincial power. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, a 21st century Canada requires 21st century uh, you know, technology. And, uh, you know, we need to start looking at these rules in those lights. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you raise a good point about foot traffic in the pandemic. I think in many, in many instances, whether it be at the local level or at the federal level, the, the pandemic has highlighted regulations that Yael and I would put in the never needed category. And we maybe tolerated them for a long time, 
but now it's especially true. So I think for, for myself in Ontario, the fact that I couldn't order a beer to be delivered, a sealed beer to be delivered with my restaurant takeout order. Um, now that is luckily been changed because collectively we realized, oh, that was kind of a dumb rule. Why do we, why do we stop restaurants from being able to responsibly serve uh, their consumers, whether they're serving them in house or, or sorry, in their own house or uh, in in the restaurant? And so, uh, a lot of regulations that are kind of need to be reevaluated or put under put back under the microscope. So. We certainly commend you from a consumer perspective um, in regards to trying to free up alcohol in Canada because it is long overdue. Um, and I say that as someone who has had to trudge his way through the LCBO and beer store duopoly for, for far too long. Uh, but switching gears really quick on some other issues that impact consumers and one that potentially falls under your critic role. Um, is the use of SEPA and, and the plastic ban for us, it strikes us. I mean, everybody wants to do their part to ensure that plastic waste isn't ending up in the environment. I mean, that feels like a no brainer, but there has to be a better way. And at least in our mind, and maybe you'll disagree or you can enlighten us in, in terms of what your views are. There has to be a better way rather than simply banning entire product classes. And so I'd love to hear your take on the liberals approach to banning certain plastic items. Well, that's, it's a great question. And I would say that there are several different approaches the government has said. If, if we go back a couple of years when Catherine McKenna uh, was the environment minister, she said they were going to ban all plastic single uses. And so when uh, Wilkinson, the new minister of the environment after the 2019 election, uh, said we're going to uh, be doing what they call a consultation. So they keep blurring the lines as to what they're proposing. And they really pick six different categories. And there's some criteria around that. But I, I think you, you hit, it the head, uh, hit it on the head quite well, is, is that SEPA, which, by the way, uh, you know, it's associated with the criminal code because violations of SEPA can be charged criminally. So it's a pretty serious thing. And so to take certain types of plastic, not chemical formations, but to certain formations of, 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 of a product. So, you know, one person had said to me, you know, what, what, what scares them is, is that, first of all, that if um, the item gets listed on it and, you know, when you formulate the molecules so that it makes a plastic fork, it's bad. And But if you take those same molecules and form it in a single-use plastic that's being used for fighting COVID-19 right now, it's good. But again, it's the same thing. And so what they're saying is, is that scientifically, this doesn't make sense. Now, I've spoken with other experts in this, and, and they say that, you know, this is clearly the federal government applying a tool that was never envisioned for this area. Provinces and territories have tools at their disposal to help work on these kinds of things. And so, you know, really, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like a, a great announcement to say we're going to work with the provinces to, you know, deal with individual concerns over, uh, you know, these things getting into water or, in, or, or attacking and um, vulnerable uh, habitat, you know, that's, that's one thing to say you're going to do that, but it just doesn't have the same soundbite uh, as we're going to ban this whole class. And, you know, that's the unfortunate thing about this government is, is that uh, they're all evidence-based when it serves their purpose. But when electorally they want to strike a particular chord, they're willing to throw science and industry under the bus uh, over their, their political ambitions. And uh, one question to that, I know that 
one thing that was is not really mentioned much in in sort of the Trudeau plan, and uh, those are the environment ministers, the role of innovation. You know, you mentioned these companies that are innovating and providing solutions. Um, generally, when it comes to your role as critic and also understanding uh, the role of, of the Canadian government and perhaps helping these businesses grow and, and foster some kind of economic growth, uh, what is the kind of role of industry and innovation when it comes to the broader issues of climate and the environment? Well, just I'm just going to step back because you touched on something really key there is innovation happens all the time if people are free to experiment. And right now, by putting you know, those molecules and saying that plastics are on this, on this list of, of hazardous products next to asbestos, for example, um, you know, some people are going to say, we're not going to invest in research that could be criminal. Right away, that puts a chill on the industry. Reputationally, it puts a chill on investment here in Canada. And this is one of the reasons why I want to study this at the Parliamentary Environment Committee is because we need to find out the secondary effects. As you all know, Thomas Sowell and others have pointed this out countless times, that that you, you, you take a policy intervention and then there are secondary and tertiary policy responses to that, that are that often have tragic consequences. So, you know, we need to get a, a handle on these things. And quite honestly, this government's approach to innovation is if it sounds really, really neat, uh, let's fund it. Like I go back to BlackBerry, uh, you know, a great Canadian company, but the CEO actually said uh, to a CBC reporter uh, when asked, did the company need $40 million to move into a, a new product line or to expand their, 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 uh, their work into uh, autonomous vehicles and GPS systems and the, the, that kind of stuff? He said, no. So you know what? Um, this, this really shows how the government actually, in many cases by policy, is actually freezing out innovation. It's actually pushing away investment while at the same time, uh, if it has a fresh announcement, it, you know, we have CEOs admitting it, it has n no consequence on their decision. It's just taxpayer money. And, th you know, that's, these are things that we try to hold the government accountable for. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring up the, the issue of BlackBerry, obviously a company that Canadians are uh, rightfully proud of. But if I remember scanning over the headlines over the last 24 or 36 hours, um, they didn't win the contract that would have basically made that government investment pay off. So not only did they not need it when push came, came to shove, they didn't win what I'm simplifying for our viewers, but they didn't win the bid that would essentially make them the provider of whatever the, the, the inputs and technology were on autonomous vehicles. And so not only was it giving taxpayer money to a company that said they didn't need it, it was giving it to a project that didn't necessarily even succeed. Um, and so it kind of raises the, I mean, to hear you quote Thomas Sowell, both Yael and I's ears go <laughs> right up because that's very much our, our, our cup of tea, but um, there's a lot to evaluate in terms of externalities. And I think that that's, a, that's definitely what's missing um, in a lot of politics of today is policy based on symbolism rather than actually what the effects are if it's going to work and then what the secondary and tertiary effects are so uh, well you know so quite honestly we should be uh, sending a, a either a copy of basic economics uh, to every uh, politician in the country or, or even just uh you know economics in one lesson uh you know those are great books uh, that just really get people to think before they act and that's one thing that i try to do in, in all my policies say okay okay just because this policy intervention sounds good what, what, but what, what other signals is that sending uh, to an individual or to a market? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And whether that's 
different levels of taxation or plastics or or, or anything else. Um, so well, it's yeah, all government I, I, intervention. It's all it's and and that's that's really what we need to be asking: Is this going to lead to better outcomes? And yep. uh, unfortunately, um, you know, some people, some politicians, like Mr. Trudeau's government, uh, they just go for the slick policy announcement so that'll get them a, a headline. But we need to think further out than that. We need to be good stewards uh, for Canadians because ultimately, uh, once these markets change, uh, th they set in and it's very expensive to get out of them. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So we're, we are running out of time. I do have to wrap. I, I did want to get to the issue of, of nuclear technology, but we'll have to save that for, for another show. Uh, Dan, thank you very much for, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. We really appreciate it. We wish you the best of luck in continuing to push for uh, for a freer future and, and, and freeing Canada's alcohol system. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on the show soon. Al and David, thank you for the time. Take care. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.